final lesson in the series on the Holy Spirit. Hopefully, although this is the final lesson in the series, this will not be the final time that you will think about and study <clears throat> and uh, seek to learn more about the Holy Spirit. This is uh, an awful lot of material. So originally, this was planned to be uh, two different lessons. If you look at your outline, numbers three and four covers like almost 800 pages in Reform Systematic Theology, Volume 3. So uh, I feel like I say this every time I teach ABF, but we're not going to be able to talk about this in as much detail as it deserves. Um, but we will get through what we get through, and I'll be giving you references from the larger catechism and scripture for each one of these things. So hopefully you will have time to study uh, more on your own. Uh, before I pray, let's look at the questions to consider. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? And how doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? Just think about those. I'll pray and then we'll get started. Our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning for who you are and what you've done in the world, in your church, and for each one of us believers that are united to your Son and to you through your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would be with us this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that you've given to us to study your word and our Westminster standards together. I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart and allow us to behold wonderful things from your law as we learn more about who you are, what you've done for us, and how we should worship you and praise you in response. For all these things, in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Alright, so before we get to the questions to consider, I'm going to just sort of walk you through how we'll do this. So three and four. Uh, number three is the application of salvation. Holy Spirit's role in that. What that is, is basically the ordo salutis that uh, Michael talked about last week. Number four is the Holy Spirit and the experience of salvation. So we've had the uh, we've had redemption applied to us. How do we experience that in our daily lives? So uh, for each one of these, I'm going to ask you to give a definition and what you think the Spirit's role is in it. And then I will give you either uh, a question number from the Westminster Larger Catechism or a scripture reference or both. And um, that's for you to, to study more later on your own. So, what about the first question to consider? How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? Yes? By believing in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Yes. Okay, so faith. Yes. But how is that, how is uh, the redemption applied to us? I guess that's partly question B there, but this is, uh, th these are questions 29 and 30 from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, so question A is question 29. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? The answer is we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. 
So uh, yes, so we are regenerated. We have we are enabled to have faith in Christ in His birth, life, death, and resurrection, and the redemption that Christ purchased for us in His birth, life, death, and resurrection is applied to us by His Holy Spirit. So we see that the Holy Spirit has a very large role in our salvation. In question 30, is question B here, uh, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? What do you think? There's a, if you look at the New Testament and you uh, add up the different ways uh, by which Christians are referred to, there is one way that is far, far superior numerically than any other way. Christians are not normally referred to as Christians or as believers. We're primarily referred to as being united with Christ. We are in Christ we are united to Christ. So the answer to this question from the Catechism is the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us, as he said, and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. So we have redemption applied to us by the Holy Spirit, and that application works by being united to Christ. Okay, so a quick review of last week and the, the week before, Pastor Mock talked about gifts of the Spirit, particularly uh, the gift of tongues. So there is a difference between the Ordo Salutis and the Historia Salutis. What is that difference, and how does that bear on the debate over gifts of the Spirit like tongues, prophecy, handling venomous snakes, things like that? Ordo Salutis is ongoing, and Historia Salutis happened at a point in time and is now finished. Okay, yeah. So the, the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation, is the way that, this is how I, I put it in my mind, uh, I don't know if it will be helpful for you or not, but I think about the Historia Salutis is the way that redemption was procured and secured. So... In the Historia Salutis, there was an Old Testament period, right? There was uh, the period of Christ's life and ministry on earth. There was the Apostolic Age, and now the Post-Apostolic Age. The Ordo Salutis is how that redemption that was procured and secured by God in, uh, his, in his will and his time is applied to each believer. So how does that difference bear on the gifts of the Spirit? If we say that in the apostolic age there was the gift of tongues, we'll just take that as an example, representative example. Is that an ordo salutis gift or is that a an historia salutis gift? Right, because tongues and other gifts of the spirit, such as prophecy, all those things, they were designed for a particular time and place. They're not normative for Christians in the post-apostolic age. So if you make 
tongues part of the ordo salutis, then it becomes normative. You have to have that in order to be saved. But it, that's not the case, as Pastor Mark pointed out last week. The, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, like tongues, were for a particular time and place. And, and why, why was the gift of tongues and prophecy given to the, the apostolic age and not the post-apostolic age? Right. The, the full canonization of the scripture had not occurred yet. So um, you see Paul writing scripture in real time to believers in a particular place. Not all believers have that at that time. We do have that. So we don't need uh, extra biblical revelation because we have the word of God, uh, as Hebrews 1, uh, 1 and 2 says, you know, at, at various times and places, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son. And we have the uh, revelation of God through Christ fully revealed in scripture. So we don't need this extra biblical revelation. Okay, so we're talking about the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. Again, we're talking ordo salutis in number three, the application of salvation. We're talking the experience of salvation in number four. So we'll start here in number three. Letter A, union with Christ by the Spirit. And I, I should say, to, to start off, this is, not, this is one order of salvation. This is not necessarily um, the only order of salvation, although there certainly could be uh, wrong orders of salvation, as we talked about, if you make gifts of the Spirit, such as tongues, part of the order of salvation. But this is the one that, that came from Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 3, so that's what we're following. So, Union with Christ by the Spirit. So what is it, and what is the Spirit's role in it? Yes, so uh, that is true. This is more talking about the union that believers have with Christ by the Spirit. Yes, that is true. Um, and I apologize. This is the, the application of salvation to believers. So how are believers united with Christ by the Spirit? have been united with Christ in death, and what's the, the sacrament that 
symbol symbolizes union with Christ and his death. Yeah. Baptism, right? We've been baptized into his death. If we've been united with Christ in his death, we are also united with him in his resurrection. And that, that that's what uh, question 30 of the Shorter Catechism, or question B in the questions to consider, talks about in the larger catechism, this is number 66, what is that union which the elect have with Christ? So you can look that up later if you would like to. I have a, a quote here from John Calvin. It says, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. So we talked about uh, several weeks ago when we talked about the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That's very important, right? Because without the Holy Spirit's ministry uh, to Christ in his ministry, uh, redemption would not have been procured or secured. Now we're talking about how that redemption is applied to us. Without union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter, really, what Christ did if we're not made partakers of that redemption. Does that make sense? So, that's what Calvin said, that the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us if we are separated from Christ. So we have to be united with Christ, and that is the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this before, but when we take the Lord's Supper, we are, uh, the, the, the body and blood of Christ does not, is not physically present in the elements of the bread and the wine, but we are spiritually taken into the presence of God and we are so Christ's spiritual presence is in the elements this also makes me think of temple imagery okay so uh, we talked about we've talked about indoxation uh, at length during this series indoxation is uh, the idea that um, at the creation of the world not only the earth was created, but the heavens as well. And the Holy Spirit dwells and fills the, the temple, the heavenly temple, the Holy of Holies, of which Eden was a copy. So when we're looking at the, the Historia Salutis, right, there was, there's the heavenly temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. There is Eden, which was a temple of God, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple. Uh, and now, what is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Hmm? Yeah, right. Believers, right? So we are the temple of God. So, so some scripture for this, 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 6.17-20. So we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the same way that the heavenly temple is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is indoxated by the Holy Spirit. And so that is how we are united with Christ, even though we are bodily absent from Christ. Okay, good. General calling. So, uh, what is the difference, what is the distinction between general and effectual calling?
general call is the call to all people to repent and turn to Christ. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what is effectual calling distinguished as distinguished from that? Yes. Would that be the call of the people that God has predetermined? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. And why is it called effectual calling? Yeah, irresistible grace, right? The the calling of God to elect to the elect is effectual. It does what it's supposed to do. You cannot resist the spirit. Um, in in effectual calling. The general call is the call to all people, uh, all humans, to repent and believe in God. Think about uh, Romans 1, right? Uh, What can be known about God has been clearly revealed, his attributes and divine power, uh, clearly revealed in creation. Is that, is general calling always effectual? No. No, right? Because there are people who are not effectually called. But for believers, effectual calling is always effectual. So in the catechism, in the larger catechism, this is number 67, uh, what, oh, excuse me, that's effectual calling. General calling, um, I have here Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, that is the, the parable of the wedding banquet. You guys remember that parable, right? Um, the, the father invites people to the feast, and they make excuses. So, well, I've got, you know, I just got some new livestock and I need to, or, or I just got married, you know, whatever. And so he, he sends out his call far and wide. Uh, but not all who are called come, right? There's, there's the one man who shows up uh, unprepared and he is cast out. So that shows uh, the difference between general and effective calling. Also, I have here Romans 10, 13 through 15, which is uh, where, where Paul says, you know, how can they believe unless they're preached to you? How can they preach unless they're sent? So the, the call for Christians is to preach the gospel, but the call for Christians is not to convert people, right? We are not instruments of effectual calling, although God might use us as means toward effectual calling, but we are not the ones who effectually call anyone. It also makes me think of 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 8, where... Uh, Paul says, you know, Paul planted Apollos water, but God gives the increase. Okay, so effectual calling, we already talked about that. Uh, Again, that's question 67 in the larger catechism. And uh, a a scripture passage uh, to support that, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Okay, what about regeneration? What is regeneration? Break it down into the the words used. What does re mean? Change. Um, possibly, but yes, that is true. Yeah. So re means again, right? Again, generate is to give life. So regeneration is to give life again, or to be born again. What is a what is a scripture passage that you can think of? You don't need to necessarily quote chapter and verse, but 
where the Bible speaks about regeneration. Yeah, Jesus with Nicodemus, right? That's John 3, uh, particularly verses 3 and 7. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. Nicodemus sees, uh, interprets this in a physical way, where Jesus is speaking of spiritual matters. He says, well, I'm an old man. I can't, I can't climb back into my mother's womb. I can't be physically born again. Jesus is speaking about spiritual rebirth. Why is regeneration necessary? Why do we have to have new spiritual life? Because if we're not born again and our hearts are not changed by the Holy Spirit, that leads to destruction, not to life. Yes, yeah, because we are spiritually dead before we are regenerated. The only reason to give new spiritual life is because there is no spiritual life. We are dead in our trespasses, right? Not physically dead, spiritually dead. So, um, regeneration is the new birth. So what is the Holy Spirit's role in regeneration? Spirit's the one who regenerates us, right? This is still in question 67 on effectual calling, uh, but the the catechism says that God, in his accepted time, invites and draws the elect to Jesus Christ by his word and spirit, savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their wills, so as they, although themselves dead in sin, are hereby made willing and able freely to answer his call. So, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are the agents of regeneration. Okay, what about conversion? What is conversion? Is it a decision to follow God um, and turn from what we were and what we did in the past? Yes, yeah. It is a, a decision between uh, to turn away from one thing and turn towards another thing. So we're turning away from sin, we're turning towards God. So what is the logical connection between repentance, excuse me, between regeneration and conversion? Yes, right, because... We are spiritually dead in sin. We cannot convert ourselves. We cannot turn away from sin and turn towards God under our own power. So we have to be regenerated before we can be converted. That's why regeneration comes before conversion in the order of salvation. There's a quote here from uh, Anthony Hokema. He says, Conversion may be defined as the conscious act of a regenerate person in which he or she turns to God in repentance and faith. Conversion only applies to those who have been regenerated by the Spirit. What is the Spirit's? Uh, what is the Spirit's role in conversion? Well, it's the Spirit that causes us. You know, first of all, you know, 
I'm not going to do that much. It's a spirit that causes us to look at ourselves, look at our sin, and and based on what God has done with us, to turn to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's the spirit who regenerates us and allows us to turn from our sin. Uh, the, the spirit also has convicting power, right? Uh, you would not know that your sin is sin apart from the conviction of the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God. So, in order to turn from your sin, you have to know that it is wrong. The Spirit convicts you of sin and shows you that it is sin against the Almighty God and allows you to turn uh, to turn away from sin and towards God. Hebrews 6, uh, 1 says, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. The author of Hebrews is not here saying that we shouldn't study repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. He's saying that that is an elementary doctrine. Again, that's not wrong. I mean, we all went through elementary school, right? You, you probably shouldn't go through elementary school again. Hopefully you've learned what you're supposed to learn. So he's not saying this is not an important doctrine, but this is a foundational doctrine. But it is important. Okay? What is justification? <clears throat> yes? Okay, good. Yes. So, is justification an act or a work? Or what is the difference between the two? Maybe that's the first question. Is this something that we do or something about us? Uh, that... that could be a distinction that could be made. Yeah. So, so is justification something that God does or something that we do? It's God, right? God justifies. Uh, Romans three twenty six. God is both just and the justifier of those who believe. So, it's a work. It's an act of God. The, the distinction between act and work. Um, justification is an act. Sanctification is a work. Because justification is a once and for all declaration. We cannot be more justified than we are when we have been justified. Can you be more sanctified than you were before? Yes, I hope so. Right? Hopefully we are all more sanctified than we were a year ago, ten years ago, yesterday. Right? So sanctification is a work because it is ongoing. Justification is an act because it is once and for all. It is a legal declaration. Okay, uh, This is question 70 in the larger catechism. And then I already gave you Romans 3.26. <clears throat> what is the Spirit's role in justification? Can you be justified if you are not 
united to Christ. No, right? That's why union with Christ by the Spirit is the first one in the order of salvation here. Because without union with Christ, I didn't read it, but uh, the short catechism, I think it's question 32, says that because we have been united with Christ, we receive justification, adoption, sanctification, and all other benefits that flow from those uh, those acts or works of God. So without union with Christ by the Spirit, you cannot be justified. It's really hard to put a promise on this, isn't it? I'm sorry? It's really hard to put one more. Yes. You know, logical way before the other. Uh, yeah. You need, in order to be united with Christ, you need um, the righteousness that we will have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and, and that, that that's a good point. When we talk about the order of salvation, it's not like a, a checklist. You say, okay, now I have been united with Christ. Tomorrow I will be effectually called. The next time I will be regenerated. Right? Um, it's it's not supposed to be separated like that. And in, in, so you have to do A before you can do B. Right? This is uh, just to distinguish the saving acts of God. So we can understand better what God does in us and glorify God more for what he has done in us. That's a good point. Okay, what is adoption? It's where God uh, sets you apart and says that you're his. Mm-hmm. You're his. His children. His children, right. So we have been uh, made into the children of God, sons. In the sun. Um, this is question 74 in the larger catechism. Uh, what What is the Spirit's role in adoption? Well, again, it could not happen without the Spirit uniting us to Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it, like, E, F, and G kind of are simultaneous mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of the moment that we are converted, we are immediately justified because the righteousness mm-hmm. of Christ is on us, and then we are immediately adopted mm-hmm. as his child. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the catechism says <clears throat> that uh, adoption is an act, again, an act uh, of the free grace of God in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put upon them, the spirit of his son given to them, are under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. So we are not only united with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, we are united uh, with Christ as sons of God in the capital S, Son of God. And we have all our benef- all the benefits that we have are because we have been adopted into the family of God. <clears throat> okay. And then some, some scripture passages, uh, Romans 8, 14-17, and 9, verse 8. Okay, sanctification. What is sanctification? Yes. Is it a process by which we learn 
more about God, the Triune God, and uh, it's a process that we go through uh, to become more like Jesus. Yes, right. So, um, yeah, think about the word sanctification. Sanctus is what? Holy. Holyification <laughs> is uh, facere, is that? Facere. Facere, Latin for to do or to make, right? Um, <clears throat> so it's holy making, right? To be made holy. And what is holy in the Bible? What, what, what's a, a conception of holiness in the Bible that we see often? Righteous. Okay, yes, righteousness, right? Obedience to God's law. It's also being set apart, right? We are set apart from what to what or to whom, I suppose. We're set apart from the world to yeah, to the triune God, to Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is uh, from Reform Systematic Theology, Volume 2, or excuse me, Volume 3. Um, and, and just sort of background for this. In the, <clears throat> sometimes I think in the modern uh, church we think about being set apart. So, well, does that mean I, I can't be in the world at all? Does that mean I can't have a, a regular job? Or I can't watch TV? Or I can't do anything? I have to basically live like a monk uh, in my own house. This is a quote that addresses that. Therefore, the New Testament calls for a separation from the world not in terms of the priestly rituals and ceremonial cleanness emphasized by the law of Moses, but moral righteousness and spiritual worship of the true God. And uh, they give 2 Corinthians 6, 14-7-1. That's where Paul is talking about. Um, you, you know, he starts out saying, don't, don't be yoked with an unbeliever because uh, what do believers have to do with the world? What what does uh, the temple of God have to do with the temple of the world, the temple of Satan? So we are set apart from God, uh, excuse me, set apart from the world to God. And like like he said, that sanctification primarily primarily looks like you being made more like Christ. So what did Christ do? That is what you should do. What did Christ say? That is what you should say. And so on. And so forth. Then we come to the last one here in the application of salvation, preservation and perseverance. Um, this is question 79 in the larger catechism. So what is preservation and perseverance? And what is the Spirit's role in them? Well, preservation and perseverance, as, as I think of it, would be um, a continuing desire, albeit difficult, to going through the conversion and the Holy Spirit's role is the encourager, the guider, etc. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah, when we talk about perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints, the fifth point of uh, tulip, the doctrines of grace, 
what is that primarily dealing with? Say that God preserves his saints. What error is that addressing? Backsliding. Backsliding. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, possibly. Um, I would say like backsliding, like final backsliding. Right? Uh, can you lose your salvation? Right? Um, the doctrine of preservation or perseverance is that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion. Right? Um, you, I'm sorry, if, what did you say? I part of it. Uh, he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion. So uh, if you are truly united with Christ, you've been effectually called, you've been regenerated, converted, justified, adopted, are being sanctified, you cannot lose your salvation. Again, that's uh, number 79 in the Westminster Larger Catechism. And, and what is the Spirit's role? Like, well, like he said, the, the Spirit, right, what, what does Jesus call the, the Spirit in, in John? The, the paraclete, the helper, the advocate, um, just as the Spirit um, encouraged and upheld the Lord Jesus during his life and earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit helps, guides, sustains us in our life. I have an, uh, a, a good quote from Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 3. There's often, uh, I don't know, some, some people quibble over, what well, is it preservation of the saints or is it perseverance of the saints? Um, and they make the point that it's, it's both, right? So they call this doctrine the promised grace of preservation and the necessary duty of perseverance. So we've been promised that God is preserving us and will preserve us, but we have the duty to persevere. It's not either or, it's, it's both and, okay? All right, we're moving now into the Holy Spirit and the experience of salvation. But you know, one, one of that part of those that one thing I always keep in mind is that we always do we always live up to our duty, right? No, so, certainly not. So the, the greatness of the doctrine that we get from the Bible is basically that we're going to have bad days. Mm-hmm. We, we still struggle with involvement, and, yes. and we always, probably daily, do not live up to our duty to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. But the point is that God still preserves us. Yes, the union with Christ. Yes. So regardless of what we're going through. Yes, exactly. Uh, God is more faithful to us than we are to Him. Thank you for that. Okay, so the, the experience of salvation. Uh, one of the the best things about the the series of uh, Reformed Systematic Theology is the emphasis on experiential Christianity. I think I talked about this several months ago when I taught on the, the sacraments. But what is experiential Christianity? What does it mean to experience something? There's a difference between, say, uh, watching a movie on some people climbing Mount Everest and climbing Mount Everest, right? What is the difference? Yeah, yeah. In in one case, you're watching someone else experience it, 
in the other case, you are experiencing it yourself. <clears throat> so there's the, the emphasis on experiential Christianity is that it should not be, our, our Christian life should not be just theoretical, right? We have theory here, not, well, not theory, we have theology, and that's good, and I'm certainly not uh, downplaying the importance of good theology, but theology should not be just bare thinking. I like to think about things. But theology needs to lead to experience, right? We do not just know that we are adopted, but we experience the adoption. What does experience of adoption look like? I would also say, I would say that experience or thinking is part of the experience. Yes, right. If we're talking experience, is, is, uh, you know, Christianity rightly appropriated by the heart of the Christian, by the Spirit's power and grace, well, that addresses every aspect of the heart. Mm-hmm. Cognition, affection, volition. Mm-hmm. So certainly, we, uh, when we think rightly of Christ, then we experience Christ rightly as well. Yes, good, yeah. So again, this isn't, I'm not trying to say that theoretical knowledge is bad. But it, it, it should not be the only part, right? There's a, a quote from Calvin. We observe this distinction between the theoretical knowledge derived from the Word of God and what is called the experimental or experiential knowledge of His grace. <clears throat> and then again, a quote from Volume 3. Reformed experiential Christianity is not a mystical approach to religion that separates religious experience from biblical truth, which would be one error to avoid, but neither is it an approach that rests in intellectual knowledge alone, which would be the opposite error to avoid. Rather, as the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of faith to enable the believer to apprehend the gospel of Christ, the Spirit manifests the glory of God in the believer's heart and transforms the character and conduct of his life. So we need theoretical knowledge. We need to study the Word of God. We need to study our standards. We need to study good theology. We also need to apprehend it. We need to take hold of it and experience it and live it. Okay, so they start off with the indwelling, leading, and filling of the Holy Spirit. What is indwelling? What is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to dwell? To live, right? What does in mean? It's hard to, hard to define a preposition, but uh, indwelling is the spirit living in us, right? Uh, I have here Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you are a Christian, you have the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, living, dwelling in you. The Belgic Confession says, the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, is our sanctifier by his dwelling in our hearts. What is the leading of the Holy Spirit? Where the Spirit guides your actions. Yeah, the Spirit guides our lives. And, and how does the Spirit guide our lives? What are some ways? 
Yeah, conviction of sin. We talked about that already, right? Uh, the Word of God dwelling in you richly. Spirit um, enlightens our minds. Spirit illuminates the Scripture for us and applies it to our hearts. If you read the Bible as just a book, you are not going to experience the convicting power of the Spirit. Okay, so, uh, and then, it's kind of interesting, uh, how did this Holy Spirit lead God's people in the Old Testament? Thinking about, particularly, the Israelites out of Egypt. Yeah, Spirit's presence was in the tabernacle before that, the pillar of cloud, or the, the cloud and the pillar of fire. Yep. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit leads us out of our spiritual wilderness into uh, union with Christ. And what is uh, what is the filling of the Holy Spirit? Now that is the question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Could the filling of the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit's actual dwelling within us? Is that the Holy Spirit coming into us? Yeah. Yes. There's a, a verse in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to your heart. So th- th- this is a, an interesting contrast that Paul is making here. On the one hand, you, we can be filled with wine and get drunk. And why do people get drunk on, uh, with alcohol? Okay, yeah, maybe because they're bored. To to feel happy, right, to celebrate. Christians are called not to fill ourselves with wine, but to fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. This is, again, from volume three. Just as people get drunk by drinking wine, so Christians who seek spiritual refreshment are filled with the Spirit by exercising faith in Christ. Good. The Colossian parallel... Are you, are you reading? No. Okay. Um, takes uh, verse 16, which you've already uh, essentially quoted. At, instead of be filled with the Spirit, rather than be uh, drunk, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly, dwell in you richly, teaching and watching one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the filling is connected to the indwelling word of Christ. Mm-hmm. The rich abode. Yeah, that leads to teaching and admonishing and singing, right? So the the, the filling of the Spirit in believers is, yes, it comes from letting the Word of Christ dwell in us virtually, and it leads to uh, good things, right? That's Colossians 3. uh, In in that larger passage, Paul is contrasting the, the old self, the works of the flesh, and the new self, the works of the Spirit. All right, assurance of salvation. We might make it through. Uh, what is assurance of salvation? What does it mean to be assured 
of something. Yes? Well, it, it reflects on a, a Bible verse that I don't know the scripture or the, whatever you call it. Anyway, um, that if, if we <coughs> seek forgiveness for our sins, that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so to be assured of salvation is to be sure God is assuring us that we are saved. Um, if you're interested in sort of um, one of the historical reasons that the Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms emphasize assurance uh, so uh, so much is uh, you, you can look at uh, the debate between the Roman Catholic Church on assurance and the Reformed uh, Church on assurance. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church said that assurance is um, nearly universally not available to most believers um, because they felt like if people were sure of their salvation, that would lead to sin, that would lead to licentiousness. Um, and so in larger catechism, question 80, the, the divines say that all believers may, without extraordinary revelation, be assured of their salvation. So, what is the Spirit's role in assurance of faith, or assurance of salvation? The rest of larger catechism, maybe? Yes. <clears throat> Spirit enabling them to discern in themselves those graces to which the promises of life are made, bearing witness with their spirits that they are the children of God. Yes. So, um, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. This is uh, Romans 8.15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, of a Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So, when you doubt, the Spirit assures you, bears witness to you, that you are a son or a daughter of God. There's a good quote from Sinclair Ferguson here that I don't have time to read, but if you want it, you can talk to me afterwards. Okay, the next section, uh, the marks of grace in Christian character. So, they have the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit. I just, um, I think it's interesting to note there's uh, another Sinclair Ferguson quote that talks about the fruit of the Spirit and um, 1 Corinthians 13 uh, about love. Those are primarily descriptions of Christ, right? And so uh, Christ is the one who bears all the fruits of the Spirit and on earth, without fail, bore the fruit of the Spirit. Never bore the fruit of, or the works of the flesh. And Christ is the one who loves perfectly. And so when we think about sanctification, sanctification is being made like Christ. So we are called to love in 1 Corinthians 13. We are called to bear the fruit of the Spirit in uh, Galatians. We are <clears throat> called to be more like Christ. Okay? Uh, the Beatitudes is the first one. Uh, we don't have time to read it all. 
But what is what, what are the Beatitudes? Or where in Scripture are the Beatitudes found? They are Christ's pronouncements of blessings. Mm-hmm. Yes. Matthew 5. Yes, Matthew 5. <laughs> Sermon on the Mount. Um, I, I learned something new when I was preparing this lesson. Uh, this is, a, a, again, a quote from volume 3. The first four Beatitudes focus on internal qualities of the heart, which lay the foundation for the focus in the next four on how God's people relate to the world around them. So, the first four Beatitudes, this is how your heart should be. And um, contrary to some interpretations of the first four Beatitudes that, that make it like a social teaching, blessed are the poor, this is not uh, earthly poverty, this is not physical poverty, this is poverty in spirit, right? And poverty in spirit is uh, humility, is acknowledging our sin, is acknowledging our inability to save ourselves. Okay? What about the fruit of the spirit? This is Galatians 5. What is the fruit of the spirit? Well, to this one, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Mm-hmm. Again, such things there is no law. Good. Again, this is uh, Paul contrasting the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Similar to Colossians 3, he contrasts the old self, the works of the flesh, with the new self, the works of the Spirit. Again, this is a description of Christ. So as we seek to, through the Spirit's power bear the fruits of the Spirit, we are being made more like Christ for His glory. Okay, then we have obedience to God's law. Certainly don't have time to read all of the larger catechism on God's law. I will tell you it is question 91 to question 152. So, um, if you would like to, to study more, which I highly encourage you to, uh, those are the questions that you, you could look at. So, uh, and this is going to be very brief because next year um, the elders will be giving a, a, an ABF series on the law of God. But uh, what is the use of the law of God for believers? I think the elders talked about this a little bit when they uh, discussed James and, and Paul, right? There's a little bit of debate about that. Um, but what is the use of the law of God in the life of the believer? Or maybe it would be easier to start. What, what is not the use of the law for the believer? It's not a burden of salvation, but it is a teacher and a guide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is, uh, it is not something that we need to follow for our salvation. Because if it was, then we would not be saved. Because right? we are spiritually poor, spiritually uh, unable to do anything on our own. But it is, uh, yeah, it's a teacher, it's a faithful rule of life for the believer. So we need God's law. Um, Psalm 119, great uh, passage of scripture on the loveliness of the law of God. Augustine said that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, are a harp of ten strings on which we can make beautiful music to God. <clears throat> what is the fear of the Lord? 
wisdom. It is, this is a John Murray quote, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. Fear of God leads to holiness, right? Leads to wisdom. How does the fear of the Lord lead to self-denial, sober watchfulness, and recovery from backsliding? First, I guess we should distinguish uh, this fear of God is not a servile fear, right? Um, it is a, a right and holy fear. Why, do we, why, should, why are we called to fear God? God because of who he is and because of who we are. <clears throat> Augustine said something like, <clears throat> let me know God and let me know myself, and that's enough, right? Um, if you know who God is and how holy he is, thrice holy, right? and you know who you are and how sinful you are, that leads to a holy fear, and that leads to self-denial, <clears throat> sober watchfulness. We're, we're called to keep watching ourselves. And recovery from backsliding. Okay, last but not least, prayer and the hope of glorification. Um, I will just give you uh, the, the larger catechism. This is uh, questions 86 to 90, and then 178 to 196. 178 to 196, that's the, the confessions, exposition of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and then Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 3, says, All systematic theology rightly applied is a theology of prayer. So think about that. Acts 9, 11, Romans 8, 15, and 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. These are all verses and from the Confession that teach us that theology should lead to prayer. Okay? And the last question what have you learned or relearned about the Holy Spirit from this series? And how will this knowledge help you in your daily walk in Christ? <coughs> Excuse me. This is, again, this is the last lesson. I apologize that it was um, squished together. Um, but hopefully through this series, through this lesson and this series, you've learned or relearned something about the Holy Spirit. Um, does anybody have anything they'd like to share? about what they've learned about the Holy Spirit. We're just really confident to know who dwells within us mm-hmm. because this world can be dark and our journey in this life can be a crop of trials and we're just really confident to know He's in us. Mm-hmm. He's taken us to strength. Yeah, definitely. I'll tell you, I... I learned uh, more about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and the importance of that. We often, again, we often think of the Holy Spirit's role in our lives, and that's important. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff to talk about with that. But just as important, if not more, was the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Lord Jesus. And that is the foundation of our salvation, because if the Spirit and the Lord Jesus were not united, 
in his earthly life and ministry, we would be without hope in the world. All right, let me pray, and then we will go to worship. Our great, thrice holy God, Father, we thank you again for this time that you have given to us. Thank you for the blessings of your word, blessings of good theology you have given to us to study and to read more about who you are and what you've done for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you did for us on the cross. Thank you that you condescended to earth, that you uh, came to suffer and to die uh, for us, poor sinners, that we can uh, be made brothers and sisters with you, children of God. Thank you that you are not ashamed to call us brothers before the congregation. Holy Spirit, we thank you for who you are and what you do in our lives on a daily basis and what you have done in applying to us the redemption purchased by the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would be with us now as we move to worship, that you would enlighten our minds, illuminate our hearts to praise you and glorify you in everything that we say and do. That we are trying, your name would be glorified. We would be edified and made more like Jesus for your glory. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.